Hello and welcome to a slightly different episode, episode number 48 of American History 2. And I am Mark McLean. Now, we were scheduled to bring you a chat about the, the war on drugs. And then we were going to give you a chat about uh, how presidents have been represented in film and TV. But thanks to some technical difficulties, some scheduling clashes, we're going in a completely different direction today. But one that I'm really very much excited about because we're going to take advantage of a recent piece that my esteemed colleague, uh, Malcolm Craig, was asked to contribute uh, to the BBC recently. Um, and that is to discuss whether we are in the midst of a new Cold War. But I suppose at this point I should probably introduce Malcolm as always. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, Mark. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, it's a great shame we're not able to do our kind of couple of original scheduled ideas, our original one, then our, our backup. Unfortunately, our good friend Fraser McCallum, who's been on the podcast many times before, has succumbed to technical difficulties and can't join us. Uh, but yeah, no, it's great. I'm really excited to be talking about the kind of the idea of a new Cold War. Are we in one? And reflecting on a much more contemporary history uh, than, than we often deal with. So yeah, looking forward to having a chat about this. Yes, indeed. And you know, there may be a point where I ask you to make the odd prediction or two, and of course, this is where the big caveat always comes in with historians, that we are terrible at predicting things, isn't that? Wouldn't that be the case? Ab- absolutely. Uh, I I never stand by any predictions that I make and always caveat them extensively, because I think, as an initial point, actually, but this is interesting from the point of view discussing whether or not we are in a new Cold War, is the fact that Historians are terrible at making predictions, and I'm not sure it's something we should be doing. We should understand the past and analyse the past and see how the past can be used to influence our present and how we can take lessons from it. But giving kind of prescriptive kind of ideas of what the future is going to be like based on the past is sometimes problematic, but I think some historians get you know, very taken away with the glamour of being asked to intellectualise about the future and all that kind of thing. Niall Ferguson, I'm looking at you. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's attractive and appealing, but I think we need to be very wary about making making predictions. Mark Twain, his famous thing, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. So that's great, Malcolm, but who who's going to win the new Cold War and what, what year will they achieve victory? Uh, well, I'll tell you. I'm that just once, kidding. <laughs> once, once I've once I've moved out of my hovel in the year 2027 and I've found a rat to eat, I will get back to you on that one. <laughs> okay, doke. So before we get to discuss this whole I, this new idea that has been bubbling away about the idea that maybe there's there's a new Cold War going on, I think it's best to revisit, you know, the old Cold War um, for listeners who, you know, I think a lot of people and and I probably count myself in this for much of my life. Um, had a sense of what the Cold War was, but not really have a complete understanding of, of what it really entailed. Um, so, Malcolm, you know, you, you spent most of your life, you know, along with looking at nuclear policy, it's always been very much linked to the Cold War. So when we talk about the Cold War, what exactly are we talking about? I think in, in simplest terms, when people say the Cold War, they're talking about the period between roughly 1946-47 and 1989-1991, and they're referencing the bipolar tension between the Soviet Union on one hand and the United States on the other. And it brings in ideas of the nuclear arms race, of intervention in various countries, particularly in the developing world. But primarily, I think people think late 40s to the late 80s, the U- the US-USSR, standoff and the tension between those two nations. But 
I'm not entirely certain that that's a particularly you know useful way of thinking thinking of it, because that kind of makes the Cold War just a period when it was actually so much more than just a period of time, and I think you need to look back to its its roots because much deeper roots than just World War Two and the immediate aftermath of it. I think you need to go back to, for example, the 1890s, the major global financial depression that comes about in 1893. And you see on one hand in the United States, at the tail end of the Gilded Age, you know, capitalism uh, and resistance to kind of socialist ideas become more solidified. That's a very simplified uh, version of it. I'm sure Gilded Age historians will be throwing bricks uh, at their computers at this point in time listening to me. Uh, but roughly speaking, this Great Depression has global uh, impact and... But also the effects on global capital see a significant rise in socialist movements around the world, particularly in, in Europe. Uh, we also see in this period the solidification of the two great land empires that are going to contest the Cold War. On one hand, you have the United States. In 1890, the Census Bureau, the closing of the frontier, continental empire is now complete. And on the other hand, you have the kind of the solidification of Tsarist Russia. Uh, on the you know in Europe and Asia, plus increases in communication, so transcontinental railroads in the U.S. and transcontinental railroads in Russia, in what is going to become the, the Soviet Union. Uh, so there's there's a there's a deep roots to it, but I also think there are as many historians, many many historians before me have pointed out, 1917 and the Russian Revolution, and the American reaction to that intervention in the Russian Civil War, all of that kind of thing, the rise of the first Red Scare in the United States, concerns about socialism and communism as subverting the Republic. Uh, but the Cold War as a, as a, as a thing, as something we recognise it, really emerges after World War II because of misperception, misunderstanding, ideological fixation, economic tension, and the decisions of key individuals like US President Harry Truman and Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. So it's a, it's a handy term, covers this period, 1940s to 1990s, and it encompasses this confrontation between the two major ideological systems of the time, liberal capitalism and collectivist communism. It's not the only major feature of the period, but it becomes entangled with all sorts of different things in the same period. Okay, so I thought I understood the Cold War. I did not realise we were going back to Tsarist Russia and the Gilded Age. So it turns out I still don't understand the Cold War, maybe after this podcast. And... So just thinking about literally, given what you've said, I mean, thinking about the name, the Cold War, such a vague term. And it's also so confusing because when people talk about the Cold War heating up or thawing, it always confuses me as to how that's really working. But anyway, is the Cold War a good name or is a a, a misleading characterization of of that sort of 40, 50 year period you're talking about? Well, I mean, it's the name we have for it. I think it is misleading. Uh, because there have been other, in an air quotes, Cold Wars before and after the Cold War. I mean, the, the Cold War particularises it and says this is the Cold War. And the, the very terminology, well, cold, you know, it wasn't cold at all. It was a hot war. John Lewis Gaddis, one of the a historian uh, whom I, I disagree with a lot of what he said, but was one of the crucial figures in the development of Cold War historiography wrote a book called The Long Peace, 
Now, he, obviously there, he's referring to the lack of major interstate war between the United States and the Soviet Union, but it wasn't a long peace and it wasn't a cold war. Millions and millions, tens of millions of people die in proxy conflicts or conflicts that the superpower struggle imposed itself on, you know, without recognising kind of lo- the local nature of many of the conflicts that become entangled in the Cold War. So, just, just very quickly, what do you mean when you say proxy conflicts? Just, uh, just in case listeners are wondering what that means. So the the Soviet, for example, the Soviet Union and the United States are not fighting each other directly. They are using other forces in order to engage in conflict, but not fighting themselves. So the example of that, a good example would be the the war in Angola in the 1970s and 1980s, when uh, the Soviet Union uh, and Cuba uh, have forces there kind of supporting the leftist side in the Angolan war, and then the United States uses apartheid South Africa as a force to intervene in Angola as well. So no side is directly fighting. There are advisors and everything scooting about in various situations, but they're engaging in conflict without actually directly engaging with each other. Okay, okay. So when would you say that Cold War tensions were at their peak? Um, and, and and why uh, have you, would you choose this characterization? Well, I mean, it depends who you're talking to and what you're talking about. I think this links into the you know, previous comments about is it a, a good term? Because I think if you're if you're Cambodian, Congolese, Korean, Ethiopian, Somalian, or many others, so the Cold War is a hot war. If you're there, when the tensions peak, I mean that's a difficult one. I have <laughs> so I have problems with the phrase uh, "the heights of the Cold War" or "the height of the Cold War." It's frequently used by uh, in kind of journalistic pieces on on the period. Uh, so, that, but I think 1948 until the building of the Berlin Wall in 1961, and then the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. That period sees persistent and really quite dangerous crises and flashpoints emerge. So, for example, the UK-French-Israeli invasion of Egypt during the 1956 Suez Crisis. It draws the superpowers into a volatile situation, and both sides are concerned with this leading to to wider war. 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, arguably the Cold War's most famous event, and nuclear war is avoided there much more by luck than any kind of good judgment. And of course, the post-Cuba period sees this decline in tension that results in the thaw between the USA and the USSR that becomes called détente. Uh, but again, go back to my initial comment, I think the peak of the Cold War depends on where you were and who you were. If you're Western European, Cold War status quo is kind of accepted after the building of the 19, Berlin Wall in 1961. If you're an Angolan, the period after Portugal's 1975 withdrawal from the country and the onset of the Civil War, that sees really significant superpower proxy intervention. If you're Vietnamese, the major escalation of America's Cold War battle there you know, begins 1964 and only ends in 1973. So I think in terms of the strictly bipolar struggle, you can see tension peaking and troughing over time. But if you look at kind of local conflicts and how the Cold War intersects with other things like decolonization, nationalist independence movements that become entangled in the Cold War, it's very much dependent on the local situation. 
Okay, great. And uh, you've, you've convinced me that the Cold War is not the greatest term for it, but it is at least a more accurate term than the Hundred Years' War, which is, of course, one of the worst named wars ever, as it lasted for far longer than a hundred years. Well, yes, quite. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, anyway, the general impression, then, that that has been left... If you, I think if you walked up to anyone in the street that, you know, wasn't Malcolm Craig or, or John Lewis Gaddis or one of these other people, um, and asked them, did the United States win the Cold War? The answer would be yes. The United States won the Cold War. I have a I have a sense that you don't quite subscribe to this simplistic American victory um, narrative. I mean, this is gonna. Be, I I can't, I can't help but feel the next uh, thirty minutes are going to be me persistently going. Well, it depends how you define <laughs> insert thing here. Um, no. I mean, well, no, I mean, well, no and yes. So on one hand, strictly speaking, yeah, who comes out of the Cold War period best off? It's the United States. The United States, Western Europe, Japan. Come out of the Cold War period wealthy, stronger. You know, they, they, they win, if you're looking for a definition of winning. The Soviet Union, Cold War ends, Soviet Union collapses... And you start seeing all sorts of problems emerging uh, for for Russia and for the various successor states there. So it's it's hard to see. But then again, the United States has this moment of the, the unipolar moment, as Charles Krauthammer, I think, was referred to it as in the early 90s. It has this moment of, you know, unipolarity, of being a hyperpower. It's the only game left in town. But that's almost a kind of a moment of imperial hubris. It's like, yeah, we've won. Oh, no, we've not. How do we deal? How do we, yeah, how do we deal with this new world? You know, George H. W. Bush tries to impose his idea of the, the new world order, his post Cold War order, and that doesn't really work out. Clinton tries to do things with American foreign policy and American engagement with the world, and it shows the limits. America may be the biggest dog, but there's serious, serious limits to American power. I think things like uh, you know Bosnia, Rwanda, easily demonstrate Somalia easily demonstrate these limitations to American power. So it, it depends. That triumphalism, I think, perhaps blinded some people to other emergent ideologies and threats that might have been on the horizon. And out of interest, because I, I have literally, if someone asked me this question, they wouldn't have a clue how to answer it, um, so I'm going to ask you it instead. Um, I... So to me, in narratives of the Cold War, I have a good sense of where China is in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. I have no idea what China's doing when the, when the Soviet Union collapses in the 1980s. And I was just wondering, like, because obviously that's seen as one of the three key powers sort of during the Cold War. But it's not well, really talked about during the time when the Soviet Union collapses as if China just disappears. Well, I mean, that's, that's a very good point because... There's often this sense that, yeah, the the Cold War is purely bipolar. But after the Sino-Soviet split that starts emerging in the 1950s and 19s, really solidifies in the 1960s, where, you know, what previously was seen as a kind of monolithic communism, there's a massive split between post-Stalinist Soviet ideology and the way of dealing with the world and Maoist Chinese communism as well. And... A lot of the time, so when the Soviets are kind of intervening in places in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, for example, a lot of the time you can see they're far more concerned with meeting the Chinese challenge 
than they are with meeting with any kind of American challenge. Obviously, the United States is still important, but China plays a, you're right, plays a really, really important role. And as we kind of leading towards the end of the Cold War, China is facing its own, uh, its own issues. For, you know, 1989, the year that the Berlin Wall f- falls, it's also the year of the, the Tiananmen Square protests. You know, most famously, the image that we all have of the man with his shopping bag standing in front of these People's Liberation Army tanks, you know, facing them down single-handed almost. So China is facing its own uh, its own challenges uh, in this period. But to be honest, 1980s China is not something I am in any way qualified uh, to discuss. I am not a sinologist and I have zero expertise in that area beyond what I've read in kind of excellent histories. Uh, like the work that Greg Brzezinski uh, has done on Chinese-American confrontation in the developing world. That's, I mean, he's he's done some some really really uh, great work in a book called Winning the Third World, uh, which is fantastic. Anyone interested in the the relationship between America and China uh, in the Cold War should definitely read that book. Cool. So, and just quickly, since. Uh... Quite a wee while ago, I was listening back to our, our, our first ever episode. I don't know. I don't know why. I, some self harm reasons or something. And uh, in the podcast, we we mentioned that one day we're going to delve into the whole debate over whether Ronald Reagan won the Cold War all by himself. Um, and that's sort of harking back to the debate we used to have in with with students in our in our American History Two course, at which this podcast is named over. Um, where we would get them to read one side of the historiography argue that yes, Ronald Reagan won it all by himself and no, no he did not um, so I was wondering if you could say a little bit of about these two opposing schools of thought and where you land on that I, I feel like I could guess on on, on the latter but uh, yeah, we did promise this to the listeners and it's, it's three or four years later and I think it's about time they got it so no Ronald <laughs> Reagan didn't win the Cold War <laughs> Ronald Reagan contributed to the end of the Cold War. That is absolutely no doubt by being first, I mean, a simple kind of division. First term Reagan, hawkish, aggressive. Second term Reagan, much more open after, you know, Gorbachev comes to power in 1985, much more open to negotiation because, I mean, on one hand, he now has someone there that is willing to negotiate, that wants to negotiate, that they have a warm, you know, warmer relationship than there has been between uh, any American president and any Soviet leader. But there's a triumphalist narrative in the immediate post-Cold War period, which I think persists today, that it was Ronald Reagan, SDI, evil empire speech, democracy promotion, bring down this wall, that Reagan's rhetoric was the thing that brought the Soviet Union down. And it's absolutely not true. Uh, that completely ignores the hugely significant internal developments, domestic developments in the Soviet Union, to do with Gorbachev, to do with the Soviet economy, to do with his renunciation of the Brezhnev Doctrine, which was essentially that the Soviet Union could intervene in European states to prevent the dissolution of communist regimes. His renunciation of those kind of things, plus domestic developments in places like Poland, in Czechoslovakia, in East Germany, it completely ignores all of that, which is actually probably much more significant in terms of ending the the tension between... The, I'm gesturing with my hands here, showing kind of bipolar tension. Yeah, he, he, uh, he, he is wildly gesturing. I yeah. this. <laughs> so, the, uh, so I think that's hugely significant 
and the kind of triumphalist narrative of America winning the Cold War and of Ronald Reagan being the key contributor to that is somewhat false. George Kennan, so the man who in 1946 is one of the architects of what becomes containment, one of the architects of American foreign policy during the Cold War in its very early stages, long telegram, X article, all of that kind of stuff, he said in the immediate aftermath of the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the suggestion that any American administration had the power to influence decisively the course of a tremendous domestic political upheaval in another great country on another side of the globe is intrinsically silly and childish. No great country has that sort of influence on the internal developments of any other one. And I think that actually quite succinctly gets down to the problems with the triumphalist narrative. Okay, and just to, just to push back slightly though, so... Is there an argument, though, right, so Ronald Reagan did not win the Cold War all by himself. That that notion is ridiculous, okay? But is there an is there an argument that liberal historians who tend to be more liberal, um, you know, academics, not, all, not across the board, but tend to be, have been somewhat reluctant to give Ronald Reagan praise in the same way they would have done had it been FDR, for example, or John F. Kennedy, um, you know, I mean, you've already alluded to the fact how overpraised Kennedy is for the Cuban Missile Crisis when, you know, as you said, it's it's pretty much luck is what's going on there. So do you think there's a sense where maybe he's not been given the credit that a another figure that was more liked for the domestic policies by historians might have gotten? No, I think I think Reagan has been given his due by historians. I mean, there's been some very good critical analysis of of Reagan's contribution to the end of the Cold War and how that that contributed and there is there absolutely no doubt Reagan has to be given credit for alongside Mikhail Gorbachev for that post-1985 engagement and actually you know having substantial coming up with you know substantive negotiations and kind of really kind of talking to each other they were talking to each other as individuals representing their states obviously and and I think I mean Reagan deserves credit for certain things. His he was fundamentally, despite SDI and everything, Reagan was fundamentally anti-nuclear. He wanted to see nuclear weapons get rid of. He was horrified by them. So I think Reagan does deserve credit, and I think Reagan gets the credit that he deserves, especially in kind of histories of the end of the Cold War. But I think in a in a wider sense, there's often this triumphalist narrative that places him at the centre of events. And I think while he's not on the periphery, he's not as central to it as people on the ground in Poland, in East Germany, in Russia, in the Ukraine, in Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Politicians can only take advantage of, of, of developments already happening rather yeah, exactly. than completely stubborn. And it's interesting you mentioned you know, the importance of dialogue and meeting each other. And today we're recording as the North and South Koreans are meeting each other to talk. And yes. who knows which way that will go. And that's it's, another legacy of the Cold War. certainly will. I mean, they've recently announced that that by the end of the year, apparently, uh, they're going to have there's going to be a peace treaty over the Korean War. Because the one thing we need to remember: the Korean War happens 1950 to 53, a Cold War conflict. It was only ever an armistice. It was only ever a ceasefire. The war has never ended. So if they actually reach that agreement, that's a, as a as a non-expert in in Korean relations. Again, I would defer to Greg Brzezinski. Again, I would defer to him on this. Uh, but that seems to me to be a significant milestone. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. So, before we move on to then sort of discussing the current tensions and the whole idea of this new Cold War, 
are there any good like really sort of accessible and by that I mean you're all sort of easy to read um and, and not ridiculously expensive accounts of the cold war that you that you would recommend for listeners who wanted to read a bit more about it Oh yeah, I mean, there's uh, in fact very recently, just last year, uh, the great Cold War historian Odarna Westad uh, brought out his new book, uh, The Cold War: A World History, which is genuinely globe-spanning. It doesn't just look at the Cold War as a bipolar conflict; it looks at it's how it intersects and interacts with other forces in different geographical locations across a wide span of time, and looks at it very deeply and broadly. It's a great synthetic history of the period by someone who's like in absolute command of all of the sources and the historiography. And that's coming out in a paperback edition in June or July, I think. Uh, so that's, that is the one book. It's the most recent big synthetic history of the Cold War. And it's also excellent. I think it's very good. I'm recommending it to all my students who are going to be studying on my International History of the Cold War module uh, at John Moore's. So, yeah, Odarna Westad, uh, The Cold War, A World History, is definitely one book I would recommend. Perfect. So... Turning our attention then from from the old Cold War to the supposed new Cold War, and I think when the BBC asked you to write this piece or ask you some questions, they didn't mess about. They basically got right in there and asked you, given the current tensions between the US and Russia, and I would maybe say more accurately Russia and the West, the relationship with the US just now is quite frankly bizarre given you know where the President stands and, and, and the State Department seem to stand. But anyway, Malcolm, Craig, do you believe we are facing a new Cold War? No. <laughs> End of podcast. <laughs> there we go. Uh, well, I th- the one thing I have about so people saying it's a new Cold War, and this isn't something that's just emerged in the last year or so. People have been talking about this since the early part of the 21st century. There's been books written that, that came out in 2008, 2009 that were talking about a new Cold War. This is not just something that suddenly appeared. On one hand, talking about it as a Cold War is, you can see why people do it. It's Russia. It's the United States. It's all that kind of thing, you know, oh, both sides have big nuclear arsenals, but nowhere near the scale they had during the, the later stages of the Cold War. You can see why people are talking about it. And, you know, people will go, oh, no, the KGB did this and the KGB did that and all that kind of thing. It's like, well, well, no. I think the situation is, you know, is, is quite different. The context is different. You know, Mark Twain, go back to that again, said it at the start. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And this is maybe a case of kind of like very vague rhyming uh, we're seeing. So, I mean, tactics that are making the news, so like assassinations, they've got a much, much deeper history in the Cold War uh, than the Cold War era. So, I mean, the the late Tsarist period, so late 19th, early 20th century, uh, the, the Tsarist secret police, the Okhrana, uh, I mean, they were monitoring and acting against expatriate Russians living in Europe. And they were, I mean, they were wanting to clamp down on anti-Tsarist revolutionaries. So infiltration, fake news, assassination, you know, these were all used prior to the Soviet Union and then they were used by the Soviet Union and its allies. But they're not unique to that state or to those states. So the sense that we face a new Cold War because of these things is, is kind of false. You know, cyber warfare. So there's a the thing. Here's what we're, I mean, everyone's kind of talking about you know, cyber, cyber warfare and the manipulation of social media and all of these kind of things. Cambridge Analytica. You know, there's this whole kind of like mess of stuff going on at the moment. It's a battlefield that didn't exist in any meaningful sense, you know, in the Cold War era. 
but I mean the the Putin's Russia's use of like troll armies to spread misinformation has got antecedents that go way way deeper in the Cold War. So again, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, there was like damaging toxic fake news in the form of like things like anti-Semitic tracts, like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, completely fabricated source to discredit and damage Russian Jews and the exiled Russian Jewish community much more widely. I mean, there's always a debate, and I'm not an expert on this, I'm not a Russianist, uh, about who exactly created the protocols, but they were created in the service of state anti-Semitism to a certain extent. So things that we think of as being part of the Cold War, fake, you know, fake news, propaganda, all that kind of thing, have much, much deeper roots. And the Cold War, at its heart, when you get down to it, I would argue, and there's a, there's a disagreement about this, that the Cold War is fundamentally a battle of ideologies. The United States and the Soviet Union, they both see their systems, although opposing, as universally applicable, so they can be applied to any society, any nation, any nation state. Whether this is the case of existing allies or new states that emerged during the process of decolonization, which is one of the, the other great force during the era of the, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, into the 1970s is decolonization. Maybe in 50 years' time, we'll look back on this period not as the, the Cold War, but it'll be the era of decolonization. Maybe we'll stop to referring it to broadly as the, as the Cold War. I don't, I don't know. But we're not currently in that situation. Russia isn't at the head of an international ideology. Even if the old USSR's kind of ideological appeal was, appeal was really kind of frequently overstated by kind of Western opponents. So, so we don't have the whole co communism versus capitalism idea going on. So, oh. the I wasn't sure whether I wanted to get into this, but I'm going to get into it because I, I found it. It reminded me of a podcast we'd done actually with when 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 I've been asking you questions before, and this is the you know the sort of the investigation into Russian interference in the United States elections, and the. I don't want to get into the the whole investigation where it's going to go and everything, but I think it's widely accepted that the the Russians, is through various means, tried to interfere in the American elections. It sounds awfully familiar with U.S. behavior um, that you've described to me before. You know, I think we did a podcast on the CIA in the in the nineteen fifties and forties and fifties and its behavior in Italy, for example. What was did both America and the Russian, uh, sorry, and the Soviet Union essentially both engage? in behaviour like this throughout the Cold War or is it, is it significantly different? I mean, I don't, I don't mean, you know, just ignore the technology. Obviously, technology is different. Are they basically doing the same thing as they were doing 50 years ago? Essentially, yeah. I mean, I mean that's a kind of very facile statement I'm making. But yeah, I mean, the ideas are the same. So, you know, one of the first, you know, from the American point of view, one of their first great victories in the Cold War is the 1948 Italian election where the State Department and CIA and other kind of organisations successfully, kind of, they think, win the election against the Italian Communist Party. It's not, I mean, it's nowhere near as simple as that. But, yeah, so there's interference. There is demonstrable interference in the use of propaganda, of funneling money into different groups and all that kind of thing. And eventually, Alcide de Gasperi comes out as the, as the victor. Guatemala, 1953-54, Jacobo Arbenz has been elected, you know, previously as the legitimate leader of the state, and then, boom, you know, there's American interventionism to kind of get rid of him uh, and have a, a government come to power in Guatemala that's more amenable to 
to American uh, perspective. So whether it was called, you know, political warfare from the US point of view or active measures from the Soviet point of view, yes, you know, this kind of stuff, you know, took place. But since the rise of the nation state and kind of like systems of democracy and everything, there's always been interference. You know, elections have been manipulated since there have been elections, since someone was elected by drawing, you know, stones out of a pot. Yeah, you're 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 the you're the leader of our tribe. You're kind of like, oh no, he was paid off by a slice of mammoth or something like that. Elections have always been manipulated, so it's not something that's unique to the Cold War, not something unique to to what we're seeing just now. And the idea of you know black propaganda, protocols of the elders of Zion, are black propaganda. It's been used all the time, uh, all the time since before the Cold War and will continue after the Cold War. So it's not. These are not things that are unique to the period we call the Cold War. Okay, dogs. So, let's talk about the man on everyone's lips then. Um, our lovely topless riding horseman, uh, Vladimir Putin. How much does does he resemble the old Soviet premiers of, of yesteryear um, during the Cold War? Is he a clear break from that past? Or can you see echoes of your Lenins, your Stalins, your Khrushchevs, your Brezhnevs. So, I don't think Putin is a, a Lenin or a Stalin or a Khrushchev or a Brezhnev. Uh, I mean, to, to a greater or lesser extent. And, you know, your mileage may vary on this. Again, caveat, I am not a Sovietologist. I'm just going to remove all these caveats. I am not a Sovietologist. <laughs> uh, it's going to take up at least five minutes of it. Um, <laughs> To extent, to and to an extent, all of these leaders believed in the Soviet system, and it's you know Marxist-Leninist ideology. You know Gorbachev. Gorbachev he didn't want to see the end of the Soviet system. He believed in the Soviet system. He believed in the Soviet form of Marxist-Leninist ideology. Putin is, to my eyes at least, he's a Russian nationalist who's more interested in economic and territorial power than than ideological power. He much more resembles, I think, and I was speaking to uh, a Russianist about this who agreed with me. I was delighted by that. Uh, I thought, yay, amateur opinions being validated. Um, that Putin more resembles a czar than a general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And I think, there's a thing, it's, it's about, you know, there's land and power and all that kind of thing, which were obviously parts of what are going on in the Cold War, but weren't the big thing. But for, for Tsarist Russia, land and power and everything were, were, were crucially important. Putin's Russia is far more integrated into the global economy than the USSR ever was. Uh, and this is a benefit and a hindrance to Moscow. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was saying to you before, I, I was reading a book recently, which is all about how geography and, and, and you know influences world politics. Ooh, fancy books. I know, I know. I felt very proud of myself. Um it wasn't about American elections. It was a really rare read for me. But um, so I was reading. The, I was reading the book, and it was basically arguing that to understand Russia and especially Putin in the last his, his sort of international moves, you have to understand Russia's geography going way back to the days of Peter the Great, um, and the fact that Russia has had two things that it's always been concerned with. One, it does not have a warm water port, i.e. You know, Russia can't get to and from the rest of the world by sea, especially in the winter when the Baltic freezes over and everything. Um, 
and also hence why they would invade Crimea, which gives it a sort of route to a warm water port. Um, and also that they are terrified of the fact that, geographically speaking, there's this huge big flat land that leads into Russia from the west. There isn't any mountains that give it any sort of defence. So all the way from France can march, like Napoleon tried to do, and Hitler tried to do, France can march into into Russia. And so the fact that all these western states, like uh, former satellite states like Ukraine, Georgia, all those states, they were cozying up to NATO want to be part of the EU and that's basically the point where Putin said no more you know there were more defensive moves than aggressive moves so does that if we take that a is that a convincing analysis and b does that then back up your point that this isn't about ideology like the cold war you know arguably was no I mean I, I would I'd agree I don't think it is about an ideological position beyond Beyond Putin's Russian nationalism, you know, which is which is I think his you know, ideological foundation. Obviously, he came out of the Marxist-Leninist Soviet Union as a KGB officer in the late Cold War and all that kind of thing. Obviously, he has a he's got a very deep hinterland in the Soviet system there. But yeah, I mean, I I would agree. I think there's and but that was I mean, thing is this is the complexity of it all. That kind of stuff was recognised in the Cold War as well. This is why Stalin wants to create these buffer states in Eastern Europe immediately after World War II is to prevent another attack on the, the heartland that is, you know, Russia, the Ukraine, uh, you know, that part of the, the continent. So that's very much a concern for, for Stalin and other Soviet leaders as well. But, yeah, I mean, the taking of the Crimea by, you know, Putin 2014, is that creating a buffer against NATO? doesn't look like it. You know, it just looks like, I mean, you're, what you're talking about, it's a land grab in terms of demonstrating power and influence and exerting kind of like Russian nationalist principles over a part of territory that that Putin wants to see as Russia. And you create that part, I mean, the Crimea has a very, very complicated history before, during and after the Cold War. I mean, we don't have time really uh, to go into that. But, you know, I think it's, it's always it's always difficult to try and kind of like d- divine the intent as a non-expert to divine the intentions of a government that you know you're not au fait with its internal workings and and what they're saying. I think there's the fact that one of the major differences between the now and the Cold War, as I said, is that that Putin's Russia is far more integrated into the global economy in a way that the Soviet Union simply wasn't. So it can you can use economic leverage, particularly energy resources, as a tool against the rest of the world, particularly Western Europe. But on the other hand, it's much more susceptible to things like sanctions, economic counter leverage, and the global marketplace—the ups and downs of the kind of, of global kind of trading and everything. Uh, it's much more susceptible to economic uh, pressure. And I mean, you have to admit, the post Cold War period in the nineties was a disaster for Russia. You know, in terms of foreign policy, exclusion from supranational organisations such as NATO and the EU. And then there was the mass theft of formerly state-owned industries uh, by those, you know, become called the oligarchs. I mean, it is it becomes this kleptocratic mass theft of formerly state industries, which is causing serious problems. And also we see the rise of Russian criminal organisations, you know, coming from the, the Vori, uh, as they were, they were called, this criminal caste effectively existed 
in the Soviet Union and were particularly notable inside the Gulag system and, and outside of it as well. So we see the rise of kind of criminal gangs in Russia and their exertion of power, and that becomes allied to the theft of state industries. It all becomes a very, very complicated uh, picture. So, and this goes back to that, was the United States the winner in the Cold War? If the United States was the winner in the 1990s at least, so let's say that they were. It's more complicated, but let's say that they were. I, th- I think it's fair to say they were. I understand your caveats, but I think it's fair to say they but, were. But then Russia is perceived, and probably was, at least in economic, political, and social terms, the loser. It lost out in the end of the Cold War. Obviously, this is stuff to do with what happened much earlier, but it lost out. But the problem is, uh, you know, we all know after World War One, isolated, bitter Germany, broadly speaking, eventually sees Hitler rise to power and bring about World War Two and the calamity that that is, the horrors of the Holocaust, all that kind of thing. Uh, but in the aftermath of World War Two, there's this determination not to permit this to happen again. Thus, West Germany becomes the heart of the Western European military and economic integration. Uh, so would Vladimir Putin or his successors wish to align Russia more closely with Western Europe? Should things have been done differently in the 90s in terms of NATO integration, the expansion of the EU, all that kind of thing? That's counterfactual history we don't know and thinking about whether or not Putin would want to integrate more closely with Western Europe or at least have a thaw intentions that's you know that's uh, crystal ball gazing territory okay and uh, I just want to flip it I mean we've talked a lot about Russia and uh, you continually reminding us that you're not a Russianist so let's ask you about sort of countries that you are very much expert in um, and I know a special interest of yours has always been the, the quote unquote special relationship um, between between Britain and America. Did we have an entire podcast devoted to it? If you want to go listen to that, it was a very educational hour for me. Have are the United States and Britain and its, its other close allies? Are they? Would you just characterize their relationship as closer or further apart than it was at the end of the Cold War? And and we, we I asked this question on a day when Donald Trump is finally committed to come to the United Kingdom, uh, albeit not for a full state visit. But aside from the Donald, um, how would you characterise that relationship? Well, I think as I said way back in the day when we did that podcast, the special relationship, air quotes ahoy, has always been far more important to the UK than it has to be the US. You know, we're not the only country that claims to have a special relationship with the United States. Pakistan's claimed it in the past. Israel's claimed it. We're not the only... I mean, we claim to have the special relationship. You know, the, the operative, the, there. Mm-hmm. It's the same as the cold, the cold War. The special relationship. You know, saying this is a singular, particular kind of thing. And, you know, the immediate aftermath of the Cold War was not a time where Britain and America cosy up to go, hey, everything's fine, we're all buddies together. And everything. I mean, there was all this... T- I mean, the Balkans. There was significant tension over what was happening in the Balkans and how to respond to it. So... And these days, to be honest, who knows? I mean, you know, Donald Trump might see something on Fox that says someone in Britain said something nasty about him and he closes down the embassy in London. We have no, literally no idea what he's going to do. Uh, but I'm going to go back to Russia again. As a non-Russianist, I seem to be talking an awful lot about Russia. Uh, the one thing that emerges from the Cold War, and one thing that people associate with the Cold War, and you know, Britain, America, and Russia is nuclear weapons. 
Okay, so that's my one of my areas of interest. And you know, Putin's making a lot of statements recently about new Russian nuclear weapon systems. And I mean, I firmly believe that the bomb for certain countries, like Russia and Britain, is the last vestige of great power status. It's the thing that makes you a great power. It's what gives you a seat at the top table. United Nations, Security Council, all that malarkey. And this might make British listeners slightly uncomfortable. But in some ways, I think this makes Russia analogous to Britain. Formerly powerful, expansive, globally influential state, now in a much, much reduced position, but still with an arsenal of the world's most powerful weapons. And I, so I think there's, when you think about losers in the Cold War, Britain didn't come out of it, you know, entirely on top. Uh, so there's, there's analogies that we can make there. And because, I mean, the nuclear threat is one of the public manifestations of the Cold War, the threat of nuclear war between America and the Soviet Union, all that kind of stuff. I, I would argue that since 1945, so even during the Cold War, the main danger has not been the triggering of a deliberate global nuclear war. Of course, that was on the horizon at times. But this incremental sleepwalking into an escalating nuclear confrontation because of accidents, misperceptions, misunderstandings. You know, 1983, for example, the NATO Able Archer communications exercise has been extensively analysed by historians. It got coupled with faulty Soviet intelligence gathering in a way that potentially risked a nuclear confrontation driven by misperception uh, and misunderstanding. So, you know, there's stuff there to do with you know, nuclear weapons and all that kind of thing going on uh, that I think is important and the way that nuclear weapons tell us about the perceived status of certain nations. And I think Britain and, and Russia, this is a very vague statement, but there's some analogies to do with the kind of vestiges of great power status there. I'm sure political scientists and IR people would disagree with me on that one, but yeah. I'm definitely deleting that caveat. That's one caveat too many. <laughs> okay, so we've, we've covered a, a hell of a lot on this on this podcast, um, which I've really enjoyed listening to. And so I'm trying to think of a, of a summing up question here. And and going kind of back to the idea of what the Cold War was, and also thinking about whether we're in an era of a new Cold War, try and tie that in. If if you were advising a leader, right? Okay, it does it doesn't matter which one it is. You're advising a leader about what would you say are the the sort of three or the main lessons of the Cold War that they should be aware of. Sorry, I would say that correctly, grammatically speaking, of which they should be aware. Of which they should be aware. Well done. My father would approve of that entirely. Uh, So, point one. You can't see the Cold War as just a particular era that exists between the late 1940s and the late 1980s. You have to view it within the context of 19th, 20th and 21st century history. So don't just view it as a period that begins and ends. You have to place it within a wider political context. Two, when it comes to nuclear weapons, you need to be abundantly aware of the danger of accidents and of sleepwalking into nuclear confrontation. Because I would argue that The biggest danger stemmed not from deliberate decisions to trigger a global nuclear war, 
but from the potential for sleepwalking or accidentally kicking off or incrementally stumbling in to a major strategic global thermonuclear war between the Soviet Union and the United States, potentially being drawn into this by allies or enemies or non-aligned nations who you get drawn in, you get entangled with it because of the blinkers of belief and ideology. And that would be my kind of third point, is that the Cold War wasn't the only game in town. There was so much more going on in the 20th century. Rise of different movements, whether they be political or religious or social or cultural, there was different forces. It was not the only game in town. Decolonization, the rise of newly independent states, the decline of the old empires was of equal, if not greater, importance in the 20th century. But such was the perception. The Cold War came to dominate people's perceptions, especially in the Kremlin and in Washington. The people saw Cold War conflict. They saw interference where there was none. And that provoked them to interfere and often making situations worse. So I think it's important to, one, situate the Cold War as broadly as you possibly can within the 19th, 20th and 21st century. Two, be aware of the dangers of not just saying, oh, nuclear war happens when someone presses a big red button and everything kicks off. No, it's not that. Sleepwalking, stumbling. And then thirdly, you need to be aware that there are other forces at work that may be completely unrelated to what your aims and interests and cultures and ideologies are doing and what you want them to do. And you need to take off those blinkers and try and see the world in a much more kind of holistic sense and give due deference to local, regional, individual ideas that are happening on the ground. Okay. I'd be a terrible advisor. <laughs> Just to finish off with a, a slightly more on a slightly lighter note, you also get to advise on three film or television films or television shows to watch about the Cold War. Which three are you advising, and are any of them better than Doctor Strangelove? So, one, you need to watch a film about the horror of nuclear war, and both my choices there would be. I'll <laughs> give you a choice at Malcolm's house. <laughs> yep, I'll give you a choice of two. So, uh, you either watch the War Game from 1965 or Threads from 1984, because you need to understand what nuclear war actually does. Uh, I think you also need to kind of have an insight into the way societies functioned uh, in the Cold War. And I think a TV series like Deutschland 83 is is really good. Uh, it's not perfect, but they, they get a lot of things right and it's a really, really interesting uh, take on it. And you also need to understand what else is going on in the world at the time. So I think a film like... Uh, Giulio Pontecorvo's The Battle of Algiers about the Algerian Independence War which in some ways gets tied up in the Cold War certainly from the American perspectives Matthew Connolly the historian wrote a great article back in 2000 called Taking Off the Cold War Lens which was to do with Algeria and trying to get round the kind of Cold War blinkers dominating everything so films like I think The Battle of Algiers would be to give a sense of there's so much else going on in the world uh, at the time Okay, but none of them are better than Doctor Strangelove, no? Yes. Yes, they are. <laughs> okay. uh, Doctor Strangelove is a wonderful film, don't get me wrong. I think it's one of the, the best satires of the... In fact, it's the best satire of the absurdity of nuclear warfare. 
but it's not the be all and end all of uh, end all of Cold War films. So there you go, a new Cold War. Um, well, as with everything in history, it is a touch more complicated. But I, I sort of feel like you got to know. I, I, I feel like no was the answer to that question. Um, but maybe, maybe Malcolm disagrees with my interpretation of. I would, I would say things. no. But if you want to say yes, it has to be a much more nuanced yes. <laughs> okay, there you go. Cool. Well, we will be back um, in a month's time. And hopefully we will get the guest that we have planned for that in this occasion. But I think this has been a, a fantastic uh, fallback option. Um, and I know, as always, when I listen to Malcolm talk about anything to do with the Cold War, I learn a lot, and I'm sure you have too. So thank you very much, Malcolm. Well, thank you. It's been it's been great. It's been it's a return. It's brought a tear to my eye. It's been a return to the old days when we had guests quite infrequently. It was just the two of us rabbiting on about stuff we knew very little about. I know, I know. Heady days, heady days. Yeah, heady, happy days, happy days. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, we shall see you later. Thanks again for listening and cheerio. Goodbye. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.